Hi, everybody. This is Dan Walker. Welcome to another edition of U.S. Law Radio. When you or your company has in-house counsel, it's really a good idea to understand the ins and outs of what they can and can't do. There are some legal and ethical considerations you should be aware of. So U.S. Law Radio brings you some of the top questions about in-house counsel you always wanted to know the answers to, but just never got around to asking. U.S. Law member Heather Lynn Rosing is a shareholder and CFO of the law firm Klein Dinst in San Diego. Heather is also the chair of the Professional Liability Group and joins us now to answer some of the top in-house counsel questions. Heather, it's great to have you here. Well, thank you so much, Dan. It's my pleasure to be here today. Okay, Heather, let's start right in. And it seems like the answer to this would be fairly obvious, but when a lawyer works for a corporation, who is the client? Well, Dan, the client is always the entity itself. There's plenty of ethical rules on this. As you said, it seems obvious, but there's a lot of ethical pitfalls with this one simple concept. Uh, Number one, you obviously can't talk with the entity. You need to be talking with individuals within the corporate entity. And you have to make it clear to them, number one, that you don't represent their personal interests, and number two, that what they tell you isn't confidential. In that, if you need to utilize the information for the best interests of the entity, you are going to do so. A lot of in-house lawyers get in trouble because they give the appearance or impression to individuals within the organization that they are acting as counsel for that individual. But the in-house lawyer needs to remember at all times that the entity is the client and that the fiduciary duties are owed to the entity. Now, Heather, aren't there insurance companies that provide representation to their insureds through their inside counsel? What kind of ethical issues does this raise? Yeah, this is a pretty common structure. For example, an automobile insurer may have a captive law firm, and the law firm then provides representation to the insureds who are involved in car accidents. Uh, There's a pretty instructive ABA formal opinion on this, 03-430, and it basically says that it is okay for a lawyer to act in one of these, uh, you know, captive capacities of being paid for by the insurance company if the lawyer informs the insured, the client, that he or she is an employee of the insurance company paid for by the insurance company, and if the lawyer can at all times, exercise independent professional judgment in the representation of the insured. Um, There's another California formal ethics opinion on this, and that opinion also, it, it reiterates the concept set forth in the ABA opinion, but it also says that you have to be careful if you're this, you know, in-house lawyer providing representation to the insured, that you follow the conflict of interest rules in the jurisdiction, and you have to make sure that you follow the advertising and trade name rules. You cannot be deceptive or misleading in the name of your captive law firm or anything that you do to promote your captive law firm. Does an in-house lawyer licensed in California but working in New York for a New York corporation engage in unauthorized practice of law? Well, this is a big consideration for in-house attorneys on whether or not they're engaging in the unauthorized practice of law, because it's very common for an in-house attorney at, you know, working at a particular corporation in a particular state not to be licensed in that state. And now, there is a model rule, ABA model rule 5.5, which basically says that you are not engaged in the unauthorized practice of law if you are providing services to the lawyer's employer or its organizational affiliates. 
So this ABA rule essentially creates an exception and allows lawyers not licensed in that particular state to act as in-house counsel so long as they are licensed in another state and haven't been disbarred or suspended from the practice in any jurisdiction. A lot of states, such as California, also require you as the in-house lawyer to specifically register with the state. So, you know, in addition to reading the ABA model rule, you need to check the specific requirements of your specific state in which your corporation is located. Now, if a corporation is engaged in litigation and hires outside counsel, may the opposing counsel still ethically communicate directly with the in-house lawyer? Yeah, this is a really good question, Dan, and the answer is yes, generally. Take a look at ABA Formal Opinion 06-443. It allows opposing counsel or somebody adverse to the corporation to communicate directly with the in-house lawyer, even if outside counsel has also been retained by the corporation. There is a exception to this, however. If the lawyer for the organization, the outside lawyer, directs the opposing counsel to cease communicating with the in-house lawyer, this opposing counsel must honor that request or uh, be in peril of violating the ethical rules in the state. Okay, good. So, Heather, we've all heard of situations where the in-house lawyer is offered the job based on an agreement that he or she will never be adverse to that employer in his or her lifetime. Is that type of agreement ethical? Good question, Dan. And the bottom line is it is not something that is generally permissible. Take a look at ABA Formal Opinion 94-381. Such an agreement, or even a request for such an agreement, would be overbroad and place an impermissible restriction on the right to practice. But the ethics opinions that deal with this topic say that the corporate employers are still protected by virtue of the fact that most states, every state, has conflict of interest rules. So if you're a lawyer that works for the corporation and you go and open your own practice, you are still bound by the conflict of interest rules, which will, in practice, restrict the situations in which you can be adverse to your former employer. Well, now, what are the ethical considerations if a lawyer acts as both director and legal counsel for a corporation? This is an interesting question. It's not unethical per se. There's a bunch of opinions in case law that says that, but there are a lot of ethical minefields inherent in this situation. For example, a lawyer acting in this dual capacity, wearing two hats, uh, can essentially endanger the privilege of the organization because it's not clear. Is the lawyer providing legal advice, which would be privileged, or providing business or financial advice in his or her capacity as a director, which would not be privileged? To even, you know, make this more complicated, Dan, the lawyer who's acting as director may have authority by virtue of his or her director powers to waive the privilege. The lawyer in this situation, the in-house lawyer, needs to be very, very clear when he or she is providing legal advice versus providing just general director, business, or financial advice. It may also be necessary for a lawyer in this situation serving in this dual capacity to get a conflict waiver in accordance with the rules of his or her jurisdiction. All right, then. Well, let's talk confidentiality. There must be some tricky issues with confidentiality in the in-house setting. Are the lawyer's communications with all employees protected? This is really a a hot-button issue right now. There's a ton of case law, a ton of ethics opinions on this particular topic. Typically, communications with employees within the organization, which are made pursuant to a superior's orders, and for the corporate purpose of obtaining legal advice, are privileged within the organization. However, the communications must relate to matters 
within the scope of the employee's corporate duties. If there was one case to read on this particular point, it's the Upjohn case, U-P-J-O-H-N. It's a federal case, and it gives a six-part test for determining whether or not communications between an employee and a lawyer for the organization, whether in-house or an outside lawyer, fall within the parameters of privilege. Okay, well, what about communications with ex-employees? Well, that's a good question. Communications with ex-employees, so this is in-house counsel talking with ex-employees, can be covered by the privilege, but may not be covered by the privilege. You need to carefully look at the purpose for communicating with that ex-employee and figure out what information you're trying to obtain. The restatement says about this particular issue that communications are privileged if the former agent or former employee has a continuing obligation to the organization slash principal to furnish information to the company's lawyer. Seems kind of like a roundabout test, but the in-house lawyer does need to keep that in mind when communicating with ex-employees when the in-house lawyer wants those communications to be covered by the privilege. What if the in-house lawyer leaves the company and has claims against it? Does the privilege bar the lawyer from asserting the claims? Well, this is an interesting question. This is the situation where a lawyer leaves an in-house position and that lawyer believes he has some type of usually employment law claim against the corporation, perhaps for some type of discrimination or retaliation, wrongful termination, some type of sexual harassment, a whole myriad of claims. What can the lawyer say or not say in the course of prosecuting the claims against the former employer, given the fact that there's a privilege that protects some of the communications. There's an excellent ethics opinion issued by the San Diego County Bar Association Legal Ethics Committee. It's 2008-1. that talks about this very issue and analyzes it at length. The ethics opinion makes a distinction between two types of information within the former in-house counsel's possession. One is employment information, and the second is legal services information. And basically, in summary, this opinion says that it's okay to disclose employment information in the course of your employment law lawsuit against the former employer. So this would be things like what they pay you and, you know, interactions between employees, that type of thing. However, it is not okay to disclose legal services information. That would be information about the legal matters that you handled for the company without, number one, a trial court order that says it's okay to disclose that information, or number two, an exception to the duty of confidentiality that would allow disclosure in a public forum. Just a couple more here, Heather. What should the inside lawyer do if he or she observes or hears about misconduct in the organization? Well, you know, the in-house lawyer is always required to act in the best interest of the organization. So I would direct the in-house lawyer to model rule uh, 1.13 or whatever the equivalent is in his or her jurisdiction. And it basically says that if a lawyer for an organization knows that an officer, employee, or anyone associated with the organization is engaged in some type of action that may result in substantial injury to the organization, the lawyer is supposed to proceed as reasonably necessary in the best interest of the organization, which may include and often does include are reporting up the chain to the next highest authority in the organization. So the lawyer just needs to be cognizant that the lawyer needs to do whatever is necessary to protect the organization. In some instances, this may require going over the heads of the officers of the corporation, for example, and going to the board of directors. Interesting. Okay, Heather, so just to wrap things up here, does Sarbanes-Oxley have special rules for public companies? 
Yeah, Sarbanes-Oxley came out in 2002, and then the SEC, uh, following up on it, enacted a rules of professional conduct for lawyers representing issues of securities in 2003. So this is lawyers, either in-house or outside lawyers, who are basically representing publicly traded companies. And these rules are very specific. You need to know them if you represent a public company, either as an in-house lawyer or an outside lawyer. And it's similar to Model Rule 1.13, requires these lawyers to report up the chain for material violations of securities laws or breaches of fiduciary duties. But interestingly enough, there is a distinction in the SEC rules. They actually permit and require these lawyers for these publicly traded companies to report outside of the organization, outside of the entity, in certain limited circumstances. So it's interesting stuff. No doubt about that. Well, Heather... How'd you get to be so smart about this stuff? <laughs> well, you know, lots of study. <laughs> Heather Lynn Rosing, thanks so much for spotlighting what we should all know about in-house counsel here on U.S. Law Radio. Well, thank you so much, Dan. It's truly my pleasure. Well, that's it, folks. We're out of time. U.S. Law Radio is produced by Roger Yaffe. Send your comments and show ideas his way. This edition of U.S. Law Radio has been brought to you by SEA Limited, forensic engineering and origin cause experts, working nationwide since 1970, and by Ringler Associates. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided injured parties and their attorneys with the finest structured settlement services. This is Dan Walker. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you again next time for another brand new edition of U.S. Law Radio.